reading is taken from Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16, found on page 975. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16, 975. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And anyone who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. 
This is the word of God. Well, probably the most self-evidently true thing I'm going to say this morning is this, that Brexit is divisive. Now, the referendum choice was either to remain or to leave. It was a binary decision, as they say, a choice between just two options. 46,500,001 person were eligible to vote. And of those, 72% took up the opportunity to vote. And of those who voted, as we know, 48.1% voted remain and 51.9% voted leave. It was divisive. Anything with just two options will be divisive. In Basingstoke, the vote, when we, when we eventually got round to counting it, we were the second last constituency in the country to uh, add up the votes, um, when it had all been decided already, um, voted exactly the same as the country as a whole. It was divisive within the Church of England. Apparently, researchers reckon that 70% of Ang uh, Anglican uh, voters voted to leave and 30% remain. It was divisive between MPs and their electorate because a far greater proportion of MPs voted remain than uh, did the country. And it's divisive within the Church of England because I've only heard of one bishop who voted remain, whereas their members in the pews obviously voted differently. Or in your case, not the pews, but the nice, large, comfortable, upholstered seats which you enjoy and which is a challenge to any speaker. But one thing about Brexit is it has expanded our vocabulary. Just three words which are I've picked up ubiquitous, meaning seeming to be everywhere at once. It's in all the news, isn't it? You can't escape it. I mean, even I'm starting off talking about it because it'll serve my purposes in a minute. Or obfuscation, meaning to make something unnecessarily difficult to understand, as in trying to confuse our simple electors. Or disingenuous, meaning to be dishonest and insincere while trying to seem honest and sound sincere, as in suggesting some reasonably sounding uh, idea, but really behind it serves the ultimate desired result of the proposer. So breakfast, bre breakfast, Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> That's Caroline's pictures. Um, Brexit is divisive. And no, I'm not going to tell you what I think for two reasons. One is because it's not a gospel issue. Christians can quite obviously decide differently. In fact, when there was the referendum, I think we published two uh, articles by Christians who were well equipped to analyse the case and who um, had different views and we were just to read and to pray and then to vote accordingly. And because I reckon that we as a country will be able to adjust whether we end up staying in or leaving. And to realise and achieve what in the Book of Common Prayer we pray for, that we would have a life of wealth, peace and godliness. 
What I would say, though, is that while I think our Prime Minister has worked exceptionally hard and has been up against, of course, an EU that does not want nor can afford us to leave, that the result that the Parliament will vote on this coming week, they will probably decide, is the worst of all possible worlds. For we have either to remain and to have a full say in the legislation and regulations by which the European Union operates, or to leave and enjoy the freedom that such a decision brings to the United Kingdom. It is essentially a binary decision. And a binary decision is what Jesus puts before people. Is he simply a human being, or is he both divine and human fully at the same time? Is he God on earth, or a deluded human being? Are our eternal destinies dependent solely upon our response to him, or not? Should he have authority over us, or should we cling to our own autonomy? Are we going to go through life solo, or living with him? All binary decisions, and Jesus was divisive. Last week we saw how he was actually very compassionate, but he is divisive because he is making a point that there is a... There are good things, but there are, there are a hierarchy of things, and he is at the top of the hierarchy, being God himself. But as we see with Brexit, divisiveness can be a great help towards clarity of thought. So four features, then, of the divisiveness of Jesus. The first is the divisiveness of Jesus leads to outright hostility from the world verses 16 to 18 and 24 and 25. You might recall on the night before Jesus died, he said to his disciples in the upper room, John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back for you. Thomas asked a question of clarification and Jesus came out with, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In that passage, he is claiming to be God and that people can only rightly relate to God if they know Jesus and come to him on his terms. And that is an unabashed and binary position. It is the position of the Jesus of the New Testament, the real Jesus, the one who will force us to rethink our most fundamental assumptions and our most cherished priorities. And we are likely, at least initially, to resist that. And so, 1016, Jesus says, I'm sending you, that was the, the 12 apostles, out like sheep among the wolves on that mini mission to cover other parts of uh, the Holy Land. Sheep, when they're, with, uh, when they're among wolves, are in constant danger, and they have no capacity for self-defense. They depend entirely upon the shepherd to protect them. Initially, the wolves in Jesus' day 
would have been the popular religious leaders, the Pharisees, who controlled most of the synagogues and who had the authority to flog people if they were disobedient towards the uh, Orthodox Jewish faith. But once Jesus attracted even bigger followings, then the establishment religious leaders, the Sadducees, who with the Pharisees made up the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, who of course Jesus was dragged before, and also were some of the apostles, Acts 4 for example, later. But then of course it breaks, goes beyond the religious world into the political world. And you have King Herod, again, who Jesus appeared before, and who beheaded the Apostle James. And then the military establishment, the Romans, they have ultimate authority. Their governor, Pontius Pilate, under pressure, had Jesus executed. Well, it happened to Jesus, and it happened to his followers in the Acts of the Apostles. How are Jesus' followers to respond to such hostility? Well, he says, be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, uh, snakes were proverbial for prudence and shrewdness qualities which can easily degenerate into cheap cunning unless it is married to simplicity and innocence. Doves are retiring but not astute and can easily be ensnared by a fowler. Such innocence easily degenerates into ignorance or even naivety unless married to prudence. So Jesus' disciples must therefore be shrewd, avoiding attacks where possible, behaving wisely and with far-sighted realism, but also they must be innocent and open, not so cautious or suspicious or cunning that they become paranoid, elusive or fearful. The balance is not easy to achieve, but the principle is that we should consider the possibility of opposition, even hostility, when we count the cost of following Jesus, fully expecting we might have aggravation, but glad when it passes. And second, we see the divisiveness of Jesus extends to the disruption of families, verse 21, 34 to 39. And what we're about to read is quite hard, I think, for us to imagine. But try and imagine what circumstances might make professing Christians do what Jesus says. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Now Jesus is obviously thinking beyond the immediate Galilean context. There's no evidence that Jesus' followers in his lifetime were killed. But there is evidence from the centuries beyond. I mean, I think to imagine it, we have to think of the worst outbreaks of barbarity in the history of the world. The Nazi occupation of Europe, 
the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, and the Rwandan genocide. The choice, be killed yourself or turn a family member into the secret police to be dispatched. What an awful option. It has happened. It does happen. Even though it is awful. Presumably because the external peer pressure combined with the internal pressure for self-preservation. And who knows what anyone might be tempted to do. Verse 34. This doesn't sound what it said on those Christmas cards which you uh, have just taken down, does it? Verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I mean, that's what the Christmas cards say. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. We may have heard of honour killings in what anthropologists called shame cultures, where a family member does something which is deemed to have brought shame upon the family. It might be by getting pregnant by a boyfriend from outside of that culture or religion. A Muslim man in Canada ten years ago killed his first wife, he had two wives, and three daughters from the first wife simply because one of those daughters had dated somebody outside of their culture. And it can be by giving up the family religion or worldview and turning to follow Jesus Christ. Now why can the gospel have such seemingly negative effects? Well look at 10.37. Anyone who loves his father and his mother more than me is not worthy of me, says Jesus. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Even if Jesus is the Messiah, it is still hard to make sense of this verse. Why would Jesus Christ do something that will weaken family ties? Doesn't, after all, the fifth commandment state that we are to honour our parents? Well, a text like this one, stark as it may be, only makes sense if we have grasped two perspectives. The first is that the entire world is in rebellion against God and even the best social institutions, like the family, can be weighed down with self-interest which leaves no time for God or at least only a domesticated God, a God we create by leaving out verses like this passage. The family does do great good, but orientated away from God, even if, high, if fairly high motives are involved, it's often just a case of utilitarianism. What works best for me? What are in my self-interests? And the second perspective 
is to realise that the only solution to deeply ingrained self-interest is conversion to Jesus Christ. Within these two perspectives, verses like verse 37 can make sense. We may have enjoyed a warm and caring family, but unless it is profoundly Christian in its values, it will primarily cherish things which in their own way are marks of rebellion against God. Material prosperity, self-interest, self-interested pursuits of status or reputation, dignity or cohesiveness. Some of these values are good, provided they do not become absolute, that they do not become the organising principle around which life revolves. At that point, the family member who becomes a Christian has to take exception. Ideally, a Christian does all that is possible to strengthen family ties and nurture this God-given institution. But a Christian will not yield principal devotion to the family and its values. And non-Christian members of the family will sense this and resent the conversion of the new Christian family member. The pressure is turned on. Fundamental choices are demanded. Tim Fallon, who, Farron, who was uh, the leader of the Lib Dems and who was pressurised by a combination of the party and the media, he was pressured to go one way on something which he knew as a Christian was wrong. And then he went back to declaring his Christian position. And then, of course, he was squeezed out of leadership of his party. He wrote this last month. Whatever messy situation, national or personal, you find yourself in at present, Jesus wins. 10.38.39. Christian conversion brings the new convert into conflict, not only with the institutions of which he is a part, but actually with himself. For Jesus goes on to say in 10:38 and 39, and anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross that we are all called to bear is not our own individual afflictions, whether it be arthritis, a difficult marriage, testing financial circumstances, or a wayward child. We may well have individual burdens and difficulties to undergo, but that isn't here Jesus' point. Christians here all have the same cross to bear, which is death to self interest. In the Roman world, the person who picked up a crossbar and lugged it out to the place of execution had come to the end of hope. Only death was left. It was futile to plot new schemes of self-interest. And that is what Jesus means. He's talking about a fundamental death to self-interest and a new and fundamental commitment to himself. And the church needs to hear and to share this message 
once again. Today we are bombarded by endless, quite often pseudo-Christian books and YouTube videos and even whole churches designed to help us become happy, content, resourceful, spiritual, successful, effective, creative. And even when those offerings convey considerable insight, the basic appeal is far too often and far too deeply to self-interest couched in spiritual language. The core truth is far simpler, verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that is why this message is not full of gloom. The point is that precisely because we are made for God, pursuit of self-interest is ultimately death-dealing. And for the same reason, when self-interest dies for Jesus' sake and is replaced by an enthusiastic loyalty to him, the greatest spiritual irony occurs and we find ourselves That is why the happiest people, the most fulfilled Christians, are those who, with right motives, serve the most. You see, if you are seeking self, if you are seeking fulfillment, you will not find it. But if you seek to serve Christ, often in countless loving deeds to others that are universally unacknowledged, except by the one who matters in heaven, you will find yourself. If you have eyes to see, it's not hard to spot people who are like that, who have found that to be true. But all this goes against the grain of what Paul calls the natural man, human nature without transforming grace. We live in a world of self-interest. Some of it is crude, such as rape and robbery and fraud and gossip. Some of it is sophisticated, like social climbing, deep commitment to comfort, and self-identification with certain groups. But Jesus Christ insists our only hope of escaping this tangled web for now and eternity, is to become his disciple with supreme allegiance to him. When that sort of conversion takes place, we are on a path quite at odds with our past and even sometimes with our families. And that is why the divisiveness of Jesus is inevitable where genuine conversions take place. And that is why the divisiveness of Jesus extends even to the disruption of families. And thirdly, the divisiveness of Jesus means that while malice is generated, it is not to be feared. And there are five reasons uh, that are given here, which we'll run through quickly. The first is persecution is not unexpected, 24, 26. 
where we read a student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. In other words, if it happened to him, it will happen to us. But he adds, do not be afraid of them. The second reason, at crucial points, will be granted special help, verses 19 to 20. But when they arrest you, Jesus says, do not worry about what to say and how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that if your house group leader invites you to um, lead a Bible study in a month's time, that you do nothing and try winging it on the evening. Nor that we don't think in advance and prepare in advance how to fulfill the injunction that Peter gives in his uh, first letter, chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. It's not difficult to think out the ten most likely questions that are inquiring unbeliever might ask you out of curiosity. They might be phrased differently, they might be packaged up differently, but it'll probably boil down to no more than about ten or a dozen. You can prepare for that. And thirdly, much opposition occurs in secret. Nobody else seems to notice that you know, we are suffering for our Christian convictions like the best candidate for a job who doesn't get it. I could think that most of our previous curates will have had at least one interview where um, they were quite clearly the best candidate. I have a pretty good idea as the kind of the ranking system as to who is a, who is a good um, vicar or, or not. And uh, they were obviously the best candidates but quite likely a liberal archdeacon will have put his boot in and exercised more weight than he legally has in such selection processes. Nevertheless, the eyes of God see it all, and they all probably ended up with much better jobs than the one they didn't get. Do not be afraid of them, we read. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. You can more easily put up with it if you know that the truth will out, that the person who ultimately matters does know. Fourthly, it's always better to be in with God than with man. I had this brought home to me when I was... Um, very young, in my early teens, shortly after I'd become a Christian, and the whole issue of parties. I asked myself, who is it most, more important to be in with, and who is going to be around in my life long term? God or my current bunch of mates? And the answer was a no-brainer. But it did take courage. Or, as Jesus said, 10.28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And fifthly, 
God is to be trusted, verses 29 to 31. If God cares for sparrows, who are worth two a penny, and he knows the number of all the hairs on our head, don't you think you are significantly valued by him, is the point Jesus is making. So five powerful incentives to allay our fears. Now none of this makes sense unless you have this eternal perspective. And if we are not a Christian yet, then as we count the cost of following Christ, we need to weigh things up both ways. The cost of loss, if we ignore salvation, and the cost of gain, which might just be a bit of temporary inconvenience or aggravation on the way to eternal benefit. And finally, the divisiveness of Jesus characterises Christian mission, but the beneficial outcomes make it worthwhile. Verse 22 and then 40 and 42. So verse 22, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Perseverance is evidence of genuine faith and will be rewarded. Verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Public profession strengthens our faith and we will be rewarded by Christ on the day that matters. And then verses 40 to 42, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. In other words, the message and the messenger are bound up together. The apostles were the foundation pillars of the church, and they're in the frame here. To receive them is to receive Jesus, and to receive Jesus is to receive God, is what this means. And conversely, not to receive the apostles, which for us today would be not to uh, agree with their apostolic testimony, which is the message of the New Testament, is not to receive Christ, which means not to receive God. So who has more to worry about, the Christian or the non-Christian? Let us pray. Just as we remember and can recall certain parts of Scripture, so we can remember and recall verses from songs and hymns. And one of those, which is very apt in the context of what Jesus has been saying here, is this. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone, against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Amen.